This is a download from the University of Virginia's Engaging the Mind lecture series. On April 10, 2008, an audience at Winchester's Old Town Center listened as Professor Manuel Lerdo discussed the biological threats to the world's food supply and forests. Lerdo is the director of the Blandy Experimental Farm, the state arboretum of Virginia. He spoke about the extent of invasive species in Virginia and beyond. Um, well, thank you very much for having me. I'm going to try and do this without the mic. And if I start to fade for the people in the back as I get tired later on in the evenings, um, when I'm halfway through it around 9 o'clock, please just raise your hand and let me know. Um, I want to um, echo one point that, that Jim just made, which is a thank you to the Adams family for um, letting us use this building. I have a long personal connection with them, having known the Adamses since I was 14 years old and working with Sarah Adams out at Burgundy Wildlife Camp. And if any of you are interested afterwards, if you have children between the ages of 11 and 15 and you want to ship them off someplace great this summer, come talk to me about Burgundy Camp. I'm no longer affiliated, but I'm still very close with the staff and directors there. Um, it's really a pleasure to be here tonight. And um, the topic that I'll be talking about, biological invasions, is one that is near and dear to my heart and goes through all of the various research activities that were just outlined. And what I hope to do tonight is two things. One, the sort of standard talk that you might hear from a scientist where he tries to, con or she, tries to convey a few scientific points that are of importance and explain those and provide a context for them. But I have a second goal tonight, and that is also to sort of drive home the importance of biological invasions and how you, as people who care about the outdoors, care about your food supply, care about the air you breathe, care about your health, how you should feel about these topics, this topic. And um, I think that I can summarize very easily in the next slide. Is this how much? Very afraid. This is perhaps one of the biggest threats to the environment, health, and food security that we face today, not just locally, not just regionally, but at a national and global level. Whoops, that didn't work. Let's try that again. Why should you be scared? Imminent collapse. Now, what do I mean by that? The imminent collapse you see a lot. We're faced with lots of imminent collapses. I'll only have time today to talk about environmental ones. Of course, these are important and interesting, but I have nothing, no great expertise in them. Environmental collapse, however, is something we've seen in some regions already from invasions, and many areas are perched to fall apart. Ways in which the environment is collapsing. Land use transformation. We are changing the surface of the Earth. There is now a long enough satellite record. You can go to the NASA webpage, nasa.gov, and look at the changes in the surface of the Earth that humans have wrought. Shifting climate, chemical pollution, and what I will talk about today, biological pollution. What is biological pollution? Well, first, what is pollution? I stole this from the Merriam-Webster Dictionary online. It's from pollute to soil, defile, or contaminate the action of making impure or unclean. And impure, I think, is the key word for 
for the notion of biological pollution that I'll explain in a moment. What is it and why is it a problem? It's the contamination of a system, maybe a forest community, maybe a farm field, maybe a pasture, maybe a lake. I have to move this because I can't see the screen. hope that's okay. Um, with organisms that are not native to or desired in that particular system. Now, why is it such a problem? Why is, well, I'll argue that biological pollution in the form of invasive species is potentially a greater problem than pollution of the environment with chemicals. Why is that? You will see if I can get this to advance. Why? These biopollutants, invasive species, are capable of growing, reproducing, that's what plants and animals do, and creating positive feedbacks, changing the environment to increase their abundance. Think about the contrast with a chemical pollutant like chlorofluorocarbons, what came out of aerosol cans, went up to the stratosphere, caused the ozone depletion. Well, that's a big environmental problem. We understand that problem. We knew what to do about that problem. We said, okay, we'll stop producing these. And in fact, we've seen since in the 21 years since the Montreal Protocol, this, the CFC concentration in the stratosphere has declined. The ozone hole is getting smaller. Things are getting better. Invasive species, we can't control them by stopping the introductions because they reproduce and grow themselves. It's the only form of environmental harm that humans can, can commit by this introduction, accidental or on purpose, which once it starts, can self-perpetuate in a way that chemical pollutants, I work a lot on mercury pollution these days, once we stop emitting mercury into the atmosphere and or putting it into our water, it will eventually disappear. We have tree of heaven spreading throughout Shenandoah National Park. We don't need to do, we could stop introductions of it today and it will continue to spread. Okay, what are the dangers associated with these biological pollutants? The biggest change that they will affect in the environment is this loss of the residents, the loss of the organisms that for some reason we want there, be they plants, be they animals, be they native species, the native trees that we lose. We, lose. we lost the American chestnut at the beginning of the 20th century because of an invasive species, a fungus that invaded through that system, or agricultural plants. Dave Pimentel from Cornell University has done some calculations that U.S. agricultural productivity is reduced by about 15% annually because of invasive species. That is a loss in the tens of billions of dollars just from invasive species. And there are the potential, and I'll talk a little bit more about these, for direct human effects, disease transmission, chemical pollution. There's a possibility, and I'll get into this a little bit, for feedbacks between invasive species and chemical pollution. That's one of the areas that I'm working on these days. So what organisms can become invasive? In short, anything, any group of organisms, plants, insects, mussels, fish, reptiles, birds, fungi, bacteria, all these major forms of life have members that are capable of becoming invasive or are already important invasive species. One point to remember is that biological invasions are not simply unidirectional. There's not a case simply of Asian species coming to North America. There are North American species that are invading in Europe and Asia. 
There are important invasions going on in Africa, in South America. It turns out, and this is one of the really interesting scientific questions, that there are some big general patterns. On the whole, Asian species do better coming to North America than vice versa. We don't know why, but people are investigating that. I want to walk you through now a few examples of invasive species and talk about sort of the myriad effects that they can have. Um, probably the most famous invasive aquatic animal is the zebra mussel. Um, this map, I don't know if you can see it from the back here, shows the zebra mussel's um, status through the United States from when it was, it was actually originally introduced, we think um, came through the St. Lawrence Seaway sometime in the 1950s. Um, and then by 1997 here, it had spread throughout the East Coast, and it's now continued to spread. Fairly harmless looking creature. They like living on other organisms. They can carpet a beach from the Great Lakes here. What do they do? Why is this such a problem? Well, in the Hudson River, um, zebra mussel invasion has been just phenomenal over the last 15 years. And zebra mussels, like all other mussels, are filter feeders. They pass material through their gills and filter out the nutrients and the, and the, the food sources for them. As a result, they do two things. One, they make the water clearer. They increase light transmission through the water, and they change the nutrient balance. What this has done in the Hudson River, it has virtually eliminated the food sources for the small native fish. When the small native fish go away, the larger native fish go away, and we've seen a collapse along much of the Hudson River, where zebra mussels have invaded, of the local fish ecosystem and all the animals that are associated with them. So this is really, I mean, it's a tiny, tiny animal who, because of its ability to reproduce, it's not a question of, of multiple introductions, the way we introduce gigatons of CO2 into the atmosphere. A few introductions can lead to an effect that we see here. Japanese honeysuckle. This is one that you are probably familiar with. Um, this is actually one of my most favorite stories about an invasive plant. Um, Japanese honeysuckle has, was introduced into the United States um, probably at the beginning of the 19th century. Um, one of my former students, Isabel Ashton, actually worked on Japanese honeysuckle, and she spent a lot of time in the New York Botanical Garden in their historical records trying to figure out when honeysuckle arrived. And it looks as though around 1820, or when we first see records of people planting Japanese honeysuckle in their gardens. We don't have the sort of historical data on spread because it's been around for so long now. Um, it's a very effective, fast-growing vine, as I'm sure many of you know. It covers um, much of the East Coast. It probably actually is in the South as well. And it is now in southern Maine. This map is a little out of date. Now, why is Japanese honeysuckle such a problem? I'll explain why this very attractive oven bird is sitting here in a moment. Um, why is Japanese honeysuckle a problem? Well, it's a problem for the reasons that I pointed out before, which are, include affecting native species, overgrowing, killing the natives, changing the availability of food for native species. It has also been associated with very large declines in the breeding success of a large number of 
birds in eastern North America that nest on or close to the ground. The oven bird is one, wood thrush is another, veery is another. These populations have been declining. And it's a really interesting story that um, Ken Schmidt, now of Texas A&M, figured out um, a few years ago. If you're familiar with Japanese honeysuckle, you know that in some years it remains evergreen. Cold year, very cold years, it drops its leaves and is deciduous. It always leafs out first. It is one of the first plants in the forest to leaf out. When these birds, all of which winter in the neotropics, come up from the from the south and begin looking for nest sites, they choose the site. They choose sites which have have the densest foliage at the moment. They tend to prefer nesting in Japanese honeysuckle. So far, so good. You think this is something good? We've increased the nest site availability for Japanese honeysuckle for the for the birds, and we'd like to see more of these birds around. But, and this is where the story gets really interesting. This is something no one could have predicted beforehand. If you look, as a person might, or a person who's over four feet tall might, you see this as a very dense, hard to see through. Material, you think, oh, this is a very safe place to build a nest. You build your nest one or two feet off the ground in Japanese honeysuckle, no one will find you. Turns out, however, that nest predation in on ovenbird nests in native plants is ranges from 30 to 50 percent a year. On nests built in honeysuckle, it's over 70 percent. Why is that? Has, this is what what Ken Schmidt figured out. It has to do with the peculiar architecture of Japanese honeysuckle. If you look at it from the bottom up, it's remarkably easy to see the nests. Most of the important predators, skunks, raccoons, are very able to, they come in from the bottom, they see the nests, and they get them. So we have very high predation, but the birds are seeing the best thing to nest in from their perspective. No one could have guessed this. Unintended consequences. Okay, I talked about aspects of invasives related to human health. Well, there are some really important diseases, important in terms of their severity and the number of people they can affect, whose transmission is affected by species, and it tends to be by species that are invasive. This is the Asian tiger mosquito, called, so-called for the stripes you can see on the leg there. And it turns out that... The tiger mosquito is an extremely effective vector for dengue. Now, dengue, as we know, is not a problem in North America. It's a very severe problem still in South America. If any of you saw the news stories in the last week about the dengue outbreak in Brazil, I mean, it's just awful. They're seeing tens of thousands of people contracting dengue. There's no cure, very often fatal. It's an awful disease. Hasn't been a problem in the United States because we don't have mosquitoes that are effective vectors for the, for the dengue virus. However, the Asian tiger mosquito, which has invaded, is a vector. We haven't seen large numbers of cases of tiger mosquitoes in the United States carrying dengue, although they have appeared, they're beginning to appear now on the Gulf Coast in, Flor in Florida. This is someone with dengue, by the way. Um, and so we have this potential for a disease that should not 
ecologically be present in the United States, all of a sudden, its vector is here. This is now one of the most abundant mosquitoes in the mid-Atlantic. If you get bitten by a mosquito during the day, it's almost certainly a tiger mosquito. When you see mosquitoes out during the day, look. Look for that striping. Um, it's now, I think, the most abundant mosquito in Balt the Baltimore. There's a Baltimore long-term ecological research project funded by the National Science Foundation. That is the most abundant mosquito they're finding in Baltimore now. And I suspect it's in Winchester as well. West Nile, a much more famous um, disease also carried by um, the same mosquito. So we have this potential for this interaction of disease vectors who don't have predators to control them. We'd have sort of this potential explosive growth combining with the disease that they carry. Big potential danger to human health. Now, to pull it back um, into sort of more standard ecological fare, this is actually one of not, not as someone who cares about the environment, but as someone who's sort of curious as a scientist, this is one of my favorites because I was an undergraduate when it began about 25 years ago, the woolly adelgid, this little insect here. This is actually what you see when they're infecting a hemlock tree. They build this waxy coating over themselves, which makes them inedible to all predators. This is the same critter, but the, the wax has been scraped off so you can see what he looks like. Here you see a hemlock forest. What we're seeing now in the northeastern United States is the extinction of hemlock. We are likely not to have any hemlock south of New Hampshire in the next 30 years. Woolly adelgid is spreading through. It's limited only by winter temperatures. And right now it is found, it has wiped out hemlocks as far north as Massachusetts and southern New Hampshire. So we have potential for major ecological change that's a bunch of dead trees there. That's a big ecological change because of this invasive species from Asia, in this case. OK, it's not just insects that are important invasive species. Mammals can be major players as invaders. Not such a big problem in continental systems, but on islands that have evolved without mammalian organisms, often predators, rats can be predators. You, get, you develop fauna, seabirds, thick-billed murres, common puffins in this case, who are very susceptible because they nest right out in the open. Rats have been associated with numerous extinctions of seabirds on many islands in the Pacific um, and Indian Ocean. Um, rabbits also, I didn't get, put a picture of a rabbit in here. I spent um, a while before graduate school working on the Farallon Islands which are a major seabird colony west of San Francisco. At the turn of the century, there were virtually no seabirds nesting on the Farallons because there were rabbits present, and the rabbits ate the eggs of the seabirds. Rabbits were exterminated actually by the Coast Guard. The Coast Guard set up a lighthouse there, and the Coast Guard um, sailors shot the rabbits for food. Now the Farallons are, the, are home to about 100,000 western gulls two-thirds of the world's population, simply because of the extermination of an invasive animal. Um, mink are extremely important invasive animals on island ecosystems. Mink were introduced into Hawaii and have just wreaked havoc on the bird populations there. OK, I want to bring it closer to home for us now. This is one of the, this is one of the invasive stories that I'm really interested in. 
and people at Blandy Farm are Ty Ralston and Dave Carr. Um, the soybean aphid. This is one of the two major pests of soybean. Soybean, you may or may not know, is the most important row crop in the state of Virginia. More important than corn. And the soybean aphid has appeared in the northern United States and, and is moving south and just can devastate a crop. Um, according to the, the extension agents um, in, in Virginia, soybean aphid can reduce productivity by up to 40%. So this is potentially a huge problem. Now, soybean aphid has not been a big problem in the state of Virginia because it has a very interesting life cycle. It spends the summer on soybeans, and it spends the winter on buckthorn, on invasive buckthorns, which are now beginning to appear in Virginia and spread through. So we don't have a big soybean aphid problem at this point. You see just a few spots where it's been detected in the state. But as buckthorn spreads, we're going to be creating the habitat for soybean aphid. Um, this is a lady beetle eating them here. I'll talk, come back to that, that slide later on in the talk. So we have this potential for this feedback between an agricultural problem, an invasive plant, and the, uh, what could be a major effector on Virginia agriculture. Now, I've tended to show, except for the mink, fairly unattractive organisms as, invasive or, as invasives. That's not really true. A lot of invasives, particularly plants, are beautiful. They're truly lovely to go to a wetland and see it covered with purple loosestrife, to see a marsh filled with yellow iris. I urge you to come to Blandy if we get a good rainy spring. Come out and see the yellow iris at the Hewlett Lewis Overlook that are filling the marsh there. They're gorgeous. Norway maple, beautiful forests. Even columbines are invasive in some places. But the thing to look at in a picture such as this, or a picture such as this, or one such as this, is not what's growing there. Look at what's not growing there. The native species are wiped out. All of the insects that cannot eat purple loosestrife are gone. All of the birds that, can't build, that need cattail to build their nests are gone. All of the mammals that depend on cattail reeds to build their nests are gone. Similarly with yellow iris. It's what's not there. That's what's so scary. Now, Norway maple is, a, to me, one of the most interesting of invasive plants. It's one of the few, one of the very few invasive plants that seems to be successful in mature, undisturbed forests. If you go into Shenandoah National Park or into some of the forests at Blandy, you won't see many invasive trees. There are a couple, but most of them are out in the, growing out in the open. Norway maple is, in some ways, the super-invasive of the eastern United States because it can grow in the understory, through the understory, of the dense, undisturbed forest. And once it's there, nothing can germinate underneath it. And we've actually done a lot of work. Um, one of my former students, Wei Fang, did her dissertation on what, where we have, in, this was when I was at Stony Brook, we had um, forests that were being taken over by Norway maple. Why was that? There were two competing ideas about 
this. One, if you break open a Norway maple leaf, it's very kind of fun to do, a great thing to do with your kids. Break the stem, the petty, on a Norway maple leaf, and you see this white ooze come out. That's how you know, in fact, it's not a, any other kind of maple, it's Norway maple. And the thought was that this, this goo, which is also in the roots, was in some ways poisoning plants in the understory. And the other alternative is that Norway maple just grows such a dense canopy that it's too dark for plants to germinate. And this was a really fun dissertation because we got out there, four of us with chainsaws, and cleared out partially the canopy to let more light in. We made Norway maple canopies look like red maple canopies by cutting them out. What did we find? Plants germinated. It was simply the effect of shade to prevent oak, beech, other maple, hickory from growing up under it. Norway maple could be the most important plant in terms of changing our forests in the mid-Atlantic of the United States. Okay, I didn't want to be completely um, US-centric in this. Um, this is actually the first organism that I learned about as, as a school child that was about invasive plants. This is a cane toad, Bufo marinus, native to um, Central and South America. And you can act, they're actually fairly easy to see and find if you go hiking in Central America. Um, we found them, I found them quite a bit in my field work, and um, I've never found one that big, I have to admit. But they're extremely toxic on the skin. And you have to be very careful after you touch them, not to put your hand to your mouth or your eye. Um, and they've invaded into Australia. And they've covered much of the coastal region, particularly in the northern part of Australia. Um, and they are voracious feeders. I strongly encourage you, you can actually go to YouTube. There is a short clip from this movie um, on YouTube of a cane toad eating a mouse which is really amazing to see. I couldn't get it to work on my computer, so you're going to have to go and find it yourself. But again, if you are looking for ways to engage, I'd say anyone from the age of 10 upward in biology, um, particularly invasive organisms, cane toads and unnatural history. I'll give a little shameless plug here, though I get nothing from them. This is the best nature movie I've ever seen, bar none. It is superb. Um, in the course of putting this talk together, I found that you can now buy it online. It's about 20 bucks. Well worth it. I can see that movie twice a week. It is hilarious. Um, and the science is all accurate, too. Very good science in it. But the, there's, an, there's a point here, sort of a more serious point, about this. Why are cane toads so successful where they invade, and yet... We see forests in Central America where there are cane toads present, but they're not taking over. And this is probably the central scientific question about invasive species. Why is something invasive where it's not native to, but simply present in its home range? And I'll talk a little bit about that when I talk a little about the research that we do, but it's an important question to consider. And of course, if any of you know me at all, I couldn't give a talk on invasives without my current favorite invasive plant. This is kudzu. Here's a close-up of it with its very pretty flowers, by the way. Um, kudzu was introduced into the southern United States in the Gulf Coast, um, first in the middle of the 19th century as cattle forage, and then during the Depression 
by the CCC um, on road cuts to control erosion. And it is, in fact, great cattle forage, and it's such a fast grower that it's great for erosion control. But it has a phenomenal growing ability. It can grow like nothing you've probably ever seen around here. And it has the potential not just to eliminate all of the native vegetation, but to change the air above that vegetation. Now, why is that? Well, I'm going to digress here for a moment into my research that links plant processes with the atmosphere. Kudzu is a legume. If you look up close, you can see the little legume flowers there. Kudzu, as are many legumes, is a nitrogen fixer. That is, it converts atmospheric nitrogen into a form that's biologically available. That nitrogen becomes available in the soil. Once there's nitrogen available in the soil, who gets it? Well, kudzu gets some of it. Who really wins out? Bacteria. Bacteria are phenomenal. They win every competition. They speed up the nitrogen cycle. In the course of this, they give off nitrogenous gases. What do these gases do in the atmosphere? Why does it look so hazy? They go to produce smog. Ozone in the lower atmosphere is, a, is the most severe pollutant we have in the United States. We've done calculations that kudzu invasions in the southeastern US going as far north as South Carolina. We haven't run the model for North Carolina or, or, nor, or for North, North Carolina and further north. But from South Carolina down to Georgia, where kudzu and west over toward the Mississippi River, where kudzu is most abundant, we estimate that kudzu alone is increasing air pollution by about 10% currently. If you think of that, that is, translates up to several thousand cases of hospitalization from asthma-related injuries. Translate that to days lost from work. We're talking an economic cost on the order of tens of millions of dollars from one invasive plant changing air quality. So this is really, I mean, again, it's those unintended consequences. Who would have thought that Japanese honeysuckle could be driving the extinction of songbirds? Who would have thought that kudzu could be making asthma a more serious problem in the southeastern US? Probably Virginia is OK with respect to kudzu right now, because we don't have that much of it here. There's a lot in Tidewater and further south. But most of the state, there's not too much going on. Although if you drive Route 50 in the summertime, you can see some. We go west from here toward the West Virginia border. Of course, we don't want to leave off the most important invasive species. Um, we move into systems. We transform them. We change the flow of matter and energy. Um, this is my contribution to changing the flow of matter and energy. And to a large extent, what we see with biological invasions is that it's all caused by human activities. There are very few organisms that we know of who have done, made qualitative changes in their range without human intervention. Probably the most famous case and the best documented one is the cattle egret, which 150 years ago was not in the New World. It's an African species that probably a flock got blown over in a storm from West Africa to Brazil, first place they were recorded. 
And because there were cattle grazing in Brazil, they were able to establish there, and they've now moved northward and are quite common um, throughout the eastern United States. Probably not this far west commonly, but you can see them if you go to the eastern shore every summer. There's an invasive species that has benefited from human activities, but humans were not responsible for the introduction. Okay, by now, you should be pretty worried. Let's tackle two questions. Are there any bright sides? Is there anything to be done? The bright sides. We feed much of the world with non-natives. We wouldn't be alive without non-natives. Our gardens are the lovelier for them. From a pure, purely Machiavellian perspective, they're great scientific opportunities that they afford. They're questions you can't answer except with invasives. And it's not hopeless. Just an example of some plants that we have caused to invade throughout the world, wheat and corn. This is where wheat is native to, the Fertile Crescent region of the Middle East, going from approximately from Israel now over into Turkey, which is where wheat was, found, wheat was originally found, um, or the ancestors of wheat and the first wheats were grown. Corn was native to Mexico down to about Nicaragua, now found throughout the world. Interestingly enough, rice was widely distributed globally and has not really expanded, rice has not expanded its global range as it's expanded as in its importance as a human food crop. It's really been an increase in intensity rather than extension in the case of rice. You have to show pretty pictures when you're working at Blandy. They're full of them. This one is actually from Kansas. And Blandy itself there, an aerial view. We'll come back to that in a moment. There are some interesting scientific questions we can get at with biological invasions. We can ask questions about how particular species affect the ecosystems. We can talk, ask questions about why explosive growth occurs. This is really a mystery. Most species do not grow explosively most of the time in population. Invasives do. What's different? What's going on that allows that explosive growth to occur? And we've learned a lot about disease in nature and the role of disease, parasitism, various aspects of that that are really from working on invasives. Some of the questions that we've been working on, why do only some species invade? We're coming up to some of the most beautiful times of the year in Virginia, spring. Go through people's gardens. Look at all the non-native species. Almost all of them do not become invasive. Why is that? As a biologist, that to me is an incredible mystery. Why do only some systems get invaded? Some places simply do not get invaded by exotic species, or have never been invaded by exotic species. The Pine Barrens of New York and New Jersey and, and Albany area don't get invaded by exotic species. Why is that? Some get invaded incredibly fast. Why is that? And as with the kudzu, what impacts transcend biology? And this is um, how the world works. To me, that's sort of the, one of the fundamental questions. When we can link biology to how the atmosphere works and make these large-scale connections. Okay, I want to talk a little bit about control of invasive species. I've been involved a bit on research and control, um, and it's, I think, something that we all have to bear in mind. First, prevention is the best cure. Simply keeping invasives out, and I'll talk a little bit about ways we can get at that. Early detection and rapid removal, what's called EDRR, or EDRR in the invasive jargon world. Getting things as soon as they appear, before they become a problem. And that is tied 
to the very first point I made. They reproduce. They only need to get there once, maybe twice. Once they start going, then it can be out of our control. Direct removal is almost always the best way to get invasive south, especially with plants, pulling them out. Biological control, I'll talk about what that is, where direct removal is impossible. Chemical removal, spraying, we do some chemical removal of invasives out at Blandy, trying to control the ailanthus that every year is invading into our fields there. And landscape disturbance. I'll show you some pictures of how you can actually manipulate the landscape to reduce invasives. This is probably the single most important way that aquatic invasive plants are spread, on propellers. Um, this sign is actually from Texas. They now charge you $2,000 per plant when they find, when they find hydrilla grown on, on your propeller blade as you're traveling away from a lake. If they actually counted, that would be a fine in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. They usually only charge you for one event. But this is, this is a very major problem, and it's a very tractable problem. Direct removal here, just some examples of people um, removing invasives from a trail in the Rockies and tamarask in the Grand Canyon. Biological control. Here are soybean aphids again. You saw them before. This is a little wasp injecting her eggs into the soybean aphid. The eggs grow, the eggs hatch. Um, the larval wasp eats the soybean aphid from the inside out, gets more wasp. Why is biological control so effective? When it works, it's the same advantage as, bi as biopollution is problematic for the same reason. The wasps are reproducing themselves. You need a very small application to potentially get a very large effect. Now, usually to get biological control to work, you need um, this organism here. This is a, a, we have a, you know, like wasps have a caste system. There's a queen and there are workers. Well, we have professors, we have slaves, we call them graduate students doing research here on biological control. Um, landscape modification, I wanted to show a picture from California. This is, this is actually at Stanford. This is the Jasper Ridge Biological Station here. Um, this is the plant who's being controlled. This is Avena, the wild oat, native to the Fertile Crescent, has just spread over much of California, pretty much eliminated the native 90% of the native California grassland. Here it is getting burnt out. Um, this is actually the, the local fire department participating in the burn here. Um, and what we see are species that, Lastinia here, um, that otherwise would be extinct. And before this pro process of controlled burn started at Jasper Ridge, we had native flora on about 15% of the grassland there. That was the 15% where the bedrock was serpentine. The rest of the material was covered with oat. Oat can't grow on serpentine. Now we've got it back up to almost 50% simply from landscape scale modification. Now, what can you do? Well, you can support Blandy Experimental Farm because we care a lot about invasive species. Tom mentioned, I'm very glad he did, um, we have a lot of opportunities for volunteers to come work with us. I see um, Louisa Fredrickson, the director of the foundation of the State Arboretum, is sitting there. I won't hit you in the eye with that. Um, and we are expanding right now our efforts to recruit volunteers 
and volunteers who want to work on invasives are more than welcome. And it's actually kind of fun because you get to help the environment and you get to go out and kill things. You know, it's sort of my ideal vacation. Um, and we have a lot of student research going on at Blandy, and so, which the foundation helps to support. Um, gallium is a small invasive ground cover, um, which was many years ago planted as an ornamental at Blandy. Not for research purposes, it was in, for the garden purposes. And we have this sneaking suspicion that Blandy's ornamental efforts there may be the original source of gallium in the state of Virginia. If you look at the distribution of gallium, it sort of all seems to be centered around Blandy. And um, Dave Carr, one of our faculty members, has a graduate student now who's working on the biology of gallium and how to control it. The Buckthorn project I mentioned, um, Ty Ralston and Dave are taking the lead on, my work in kudzu. And we have a very active summer research program um, where we bring in undergraduates from UVA, from, from all over the country, to come and spend the summer doing research at Blandy. Quite a few of those end up working on invasive species. Um, I want to see if I can actually go back here. I want to say one more thing about Blandy. I want you to take a close look at this picture before I end. Um, what you see here is a very heavily human-modified landscape. And this is, in my view, where ecology needs to be done. There's very little, the marginal value of working in remote, pristine regions is very small these days. Because A, there are very few of them, and they're getting to be fewer every day. And B, that's where most people have worked most of the time. Where we really need to figure things out are on these modified landscapes. What you see when you drive around Winchester, when you drive outside of Winchester. And this is where invasive species tend to be found. And I think that we have, in this folk, by focusing on human-modified landscapes, we end up focusing our attention on these non-native species that change populations, they change communities, they change the way matter and energy move across the surface of the Earth. Um, I want to stop here, but before I finish, I want to give a couple of acknowledgments to people who um, knowingly or not donated slides to this talk. Um, Dave Carr and Ty Ralston had sent me slides, and Tim Farmer, who I think is here, yes, donate the, the really nice-looking slides of a lot of the organisms. They came from there. The oven bird um, came from Burgundy Wildlife Camp. The, I cropped my hand out of it from when I was holding it. That's a very old picture now. Um, and Ken Schmidt, who did the work on the honeysuckle, helped me a lot in putting, putting things together for this. Um, and I want to close by, again, thanking you for coming. I hope this has been um, interesting, and I hope you're a little worried. I hope you're a little more concerned. I disagree with what Althea said. I hope you're not relaxed. I want people to be less relaxed than they were when they started. You can relax later with cookies and, cookies and drinks. Um, this is, we're going to see a very different world over the next 50 years if things keep going the way they are. And this is one of the big reasons why. Well, not Blandy, but biological invasions are one of the big reasons why. And with that, I'll stop and take any questions. Thanks. Yeah. I can't hear you. I'm sorry. Why did industry 
Well, wine, you know, the, the wine industry globally is, is probably the, agricult the agricultural industry that's been most affected by invasions. And the, the famous one, of course, is California Phytophthora fungi invading in France and to a large extent wiping out much of the rootstock of French vineyards. We see in, if you go to France and you, go, you visit vineyards, they almost all now have California rootstock because of the effect of that. So where will invasives come? Grapes are subject to a, a few invasive insects. We don't really have a lot of major problems that are not fairly easily controlled right now. Um, probably the biggest potential problem facing the wine industry will be fungal invasions. Um, and it's very hard to predict where those will come from. Um, the main, as I said, it's, the, it's a North America to Europe invasion that has been the worst um, that we know of. But we do see some movement. Um, there are some Asian grapes that carry fungi that probably would become extremely invasive if they moved into the US. Most likely that would hit California first. Um, my suspicion is that the wine industry is probably going to be relatively safe compared to corn and soybean, which I think are the two most vulnerable agricultural crops in, in Virginia right now. Yes? Um, I want to ask about whether all species of buckhorn are equally problematic, but before we finish the wine, I know that there have been letters written to raise awareness of the effect that pesticides and fungicides will have on the environment when used on grape growing, especially when near children, uh, that there is a detrimental effect on the environment, especially when grapes are growing near schools, right. and that we should be aware that we may modify in some way or you know, govern how it's done. Well, this is sort of, if you go back to that first slide when I talked about the environmental threats of chemical pollution. Um, this is actually something that California has become very aware of. Um, the, the wine industry in California for many years used phenomenal levels of pesticide and fungicide. And they were able to do this because most of what they were treating, treating with was not getting incorporated into the grapes. And so their food product, what was important from the farmer's perspective, was not becoming very contaminated. Of course, you know, do a little mass balance calculation. If it's not getting incorporated into the grape, it's going somewhere else. It's going into surface water in particular. And there's actually now much more environmental regulation in California. But even more impressively, there's been a huge market drive toward reduced fungicide, pesticide, and even organic wine growing in California. And some of the major growers Gallo, is, for example, is now producing organic wines from California. I don't know if they're any good, but this is, a, I mean, I don't know if they're any worse than what Gallo was producing before. Um, but this is, a, this is a real potential problem, independent of invasive species, that, that I think people need to be aware of. Um, and how much of a problem it will become in Virginia as, as viticulture grows, I really 
I don't know. I'm not familiar enough with the industrial side, the business model. Where is it grown? How is it grown? What needs to, how does it need to be grown? Um, fungus is, of course, the major problem that, that, that vineyards face. Um, and how that will be handled, I don't, that's something I don't know much about. Oh, yes, I'm sorry. Um, no, all species of buckthorn are not equally usable as hosts. And um, one of the questions that Ty Ralston is trying to get at is what's driving these preferences? How do they play out in nature? Yeah. Green shirt, sorry. You mentioned the vulnerability of soybeans and corn. Yeah. And I was just wondering if the fact that Um, so in case you couldn't hear, the question was, does the fact that virtually all the corn and soybean grown in the U.S. as well as in Central and South America is either transgenically modified or genetically modified through classical selection? Probably the, the answer is that the fact that it's either classically modified or transgenic, that is, genes have been physically inserted, probably that's not increasing vulnerability. What does make those crops particularly vulnerable to invasive, particularly pathogens, but insects as well, is that they tend to be, the populations of them tend to be genetically uniform across really large spatial scales. So we're talking in the case of soybean, um, I've done some work on, on soybean in Brazil, which is one of the largest soybean producers in the world, and you can go for literally what did we find? 180 kilometers of soybean, linear, with one genotype. Think if you're a pest who turns out to be well adapted to that one genotype. Boy, it's like those two five-year-olds I showed you in an ice cream store all alone. I mean, they just go to town. So it's not genetic modification per se that presents the vul that increases vulnerability. It's genetic uniformity. Be they, you know, it could be any line that's isogenic, once something can get at it, most defenses are genetically based. And so once something can overcome a genetically based defense, it can spread like wildfire. Yeah? Uh, do you have any idea uh, what it would cost approximately to eradicate, say, uh, 200 acres of uh, an area that's overgrown with kudzu, you know, the cost of materials and uh, manpower, and also to keep it down well, this is one of those cases, I mean, that's a, it's a really important question. I'm going to expand your question and then come back to the specific one. The, the expanded version of that question is, how much does it cost to remove it in any situation? I mean, we have to ask these questions. What is the damage it's causing, and how much would it cost to end that damage? Um, in kudzu, actually, this is one where farmers have been long, far ahead of the conservation and the science community. Um, in that they've known now since the 1940s that if you want to get kudzu out of your field, you put your cows in it. And three years of grazing, heavy grazing, is enough to remove kudzu at very little expense, very little marginal cost for the removal. The challenge with kudzu comes, however, when it gets out of the field and into the forest. How do you get it out of the trees in the forest? Cows aren't not that great at climbing up, and you, the expense goes up when you have to bring the cranes in to lift them up. So what do you do then? Then the problem goes from virtually zero cost for removal to astronomical. 
there's virtually nothing you can do short of clearing the forest to remove the cousin. We're going through manually, cutting all those stems as they come down the ground. Enormous labor cost to pursue that. I don't know what 200 acres would cost, um, but I mean, it's, it's really an intractable problem once it's in the forest. And it sort of comes back to the point I made before, which is that if you can, kudzu almost always starts in an open field. If you can get it quickly, before it gets to the forest, it's not hard at all to control. Um, I've been working with Scott Olinger um, at NASA, who does remote sensing. So he flies airplanes over the eastern United States. And his goal as a scientist is to try to identify different species from airplanes and then again, and then from satellites. And we've been working to try to develop ways to identify kudzu, very small patches of kudzu. Um, so kudzu on the scale of five meters, patches of kudzu five meters in size, remotely, ideally from space, though we haven't succeeded with that yet. We are able to do it from an airplane. And we can see kudzu is a nitrogen fixer. It's one of the only nitrogen fixers in the eastern US. And you can actually see that nitrogen with um, remote sensing tools from the airplane and we hope from a satellite soon. And so that sort of early detection system is probably in the long run the cheapest way to control something like kudzu because once it gets into the forest, you're pretty much done. Yeah. I live over in Loudoun County, and, and a few years ago we had a problem with kudzu. I'm not, I can't remember how many years ago, but it seemed to be spreading. And now we don't seem to have such a problem with it. It's, I know it's in small pocket areas, but it's, it didn't continue hmm. to expand as far as I can tell. And secondly, related to that is what, when you talk about controlling invasives, what, what, are you, what are your goals? I mean, like honeysuckle, um, I, I live on a small farm. It's, it's been there for a long time, and right now it seems at a stable level. It's not um, expanding and taking over. Do, do I just leave that and say, let it go and concentrate on something else? How do I know where to put my efforts? You know, what, what, are, what are we really trying to accomplish? So, I mean, let me just speak, repeat your question so that everyone can hear. Um, Two quest, two, there were two main questions, if I, if I understood you right. One was, what about situations where an invasive plant seems to have gone from epidemic to endemic? That is, you don't see it spreading and taking over more than it is, but it's not going down either. And then connected to that, where should someone who wants to work on controlling exotic plants focus their efforts? Well, I think that the answers are going to be very locally specific. I don't think, a, I don't think there's a single answer at the, state of, at the scale of the state of Virginia, for example. I think there's probably an answer. There might be answers at the scale of Loudoun County. Um, so for example, from, we've done a lot of work over the last 10 years tracking the spread of kudzu northward. I would say that people who are in any area Loudoun and north where kudzu is not really succeeded yet, that should be a focal plant for property owners to pay attention to. Um, further up in the Northeast, barberry is a, is a big problem, really big problem. Um, and it's still, it's right at the edge of being controllable in the forest understory. 
Um, Japanese honeysuckle, if it's in a plot already, it's extremely hard to remove. Um, if it's not expanding, maybe pay attention to other things. Look, see Ailanthus coming in on the edge of your woodlot. Ailanthus is a very tricky tree. I don't know if you know it. It's tree of heaven, or if you ever read the book, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, that's Ailanthus. Um, well, Ailanthus is one of the only trees found around here. It's not native here. It's native to, to East Asia. It's one of the only trees found around here capable of clonal growth. That is, it can send a runner underground and put up a new, a new shoot above ground. And so what we find, and this is going on in Shenandoah National Park right now. If you hike um, in the White Oak Canyon area, you can see this. It's really it's stunning to see. There are a few clearings. Ailanthus need, you, when Ailanthus grows from seed, it needs to grow in full sun. It needs an opening, a clearing. And there are a few clearings, probably naturally occurring ones, where Ailanthus established. And there are some very big trees in the park. They have sent runners now into the undisturbed forest. And you can see Ailanthus 30 feet tall in the forest. How did they get established there? Well, you can go back and you can find 50 feet away, 80 feet away, the inverted commas mother tree for them. So there are, that's, a, that's one that's probably a particular danger. If you have a woodlot on your farm, I would be very worried about Norway maple coming in. Um, you can take it out, of course, but then you're going to lose the woodlot itself. Better to take it out at the seedling stage when you can. Um, on the whole, I think that over the last 15 years, there's been a real impressive growth in understanding and awareness with invasives by the extension services and by organizations that plant lots of plants like VDOT. Um, when, I was in, when I started at Stony Brook in New York, the Department of Transportation was planting literally tens of thousands of in, very severe invasives along the roads throughout Long Island every year. Now, they, won't, they, they don't even carry them in their stock anymore. So extension agents are probably your best bet for the locally appropriate answer on that. Yeah? you draw a distinction between uh, invasive species that spread because of man-made activities versus natural selection and, and evolution, let's say? I mean, today's native species might have been yesterday's invasive species. Well, as I said, we we know of very few species that have, say, crossed continental boundaries without human assistance. Um, we don't have any trees, for example, in the eastern U.S. that crossed continental boundaries without human assistance. So in that sense, um, there's a pretty, it's pretty easy to draw that distinction. Where things get really confusing and where your question is, is hard to answer, which makes it even more interesting to me, is this notion of a, an exotic plant, one that we've brought from somewhere else, that can exist for 100 years, 150 years in people's gardens, and then all of a sudden become invasive. And the question then is, why did they do that? Was it natural selection, some evolutionary change in the plant that occurred, or was it just sort of some demographic process 
with no evolutionary change. And um, if you really have trouble falling asleep at night, I can give you reams of scientific papers on that very topic. Um, I tend to fall into the camp of thinking that it's not usually evolutionary change that's driving that, um, that it's sort of a more simple demographic model. Um, if you look at, look at a simple model of exponential, you see I need a chalkboard, of exponential growth, for a long time you can be fairly flat and it looks like no growth at all. And then all of a sudden you start shooting upward. And that lag phase is something we don't understand yet. So the answer is there's native versus exotic is a very easy distinction to make. Did it get here because of human activities or not? But exotic versus invasive is a much tougher distinction to make because organisms don't always sit comfortably sit well in one group or the other. Yeah? Whenever one species in an ecosystem takes off, usually it's, it's the ecosystem responds to that with some kind of predator to keep everything in balance. Why is that law not applied? Well, that, there's it's not that the law is not applying, it's a question of time scale. So the question was, why do invasives take off and why doesn't someone, you know, why doesn't the Atlantis beetle suddenly appear and start eating them? The reason is that when Atlantis was introduced, it was introduced without the Atlantis beetle. And most insects, who are the most important predators on plants, tend to be very specialized in what they eat. Oak, oak moths, don't eat maples. And you know, you can give them maples and they will die. They will die rather than, they will starve to death rather than eat that maple leaf. And that same thing happens with invasive plants. If we could look at a time scale of thousands of years, probably some insect would evolve or would appear as an, introdu as an introduction. It's a question of time scale. Um, and we've in fact seen, this is what biological control often involves, is bringing that predator done, down. And so the, there's a great example from Australia where prickly pear cactus, which is not native, was introduced, took over in the Australian arid grassland. Sheep cannot eat cactus. This was a huge economic problem for Australian farmers. A moth was introduced to eat the cactus. Opunches, the cactus is almost gone now from Australia. So it is possible, um, but often what happens is invasive organisms, by moving, escape their predators. And if we gave them enough time, thousands of years, maybe they'd show up. So if you apply that to humans and our overpopulation, something would come that could, like, uh, virus or something that would would hold down our population, but it just hasn't happened. Yeah, we, used, we um, 600 years ago or so, we called it the Black Death. Population density went really high in Europe, and we actually, they actually, you know, there wasn't an understanding of a germ theory of disease. Disease took off, reduced population by a third. Population densities went low enough that the disease was no longer epidemic and sort of maintained at an endemic level. So yeah, there are, there are pop possibilities for either disease or pathogens or predators. Um, 
to come in. We're more likely to be our, my guess, this is not as a biologist, my guess is we're most likely to become our own most severe predator, but that's just a guess. Yeah. I have two questions, and the first is, um, at the first of your talk, you alluded to thinking about invasives being more successful from Asia and North America than vice versa. And I was wondering what the thoughts are on that. And the second is, what is the current thought on the effect of climate change on the range expansion of invasives? Okay, so the questions, there were two questions. One is, why is there a general tendency for there to be more invasions of Asia to North America than North America to Asia? Um, I should say that I'm, I'm using Asia geologically, which goes, Asia in that case goes to as far as England. Um, Europe doesn't exist in my, in my world. And um, the, the short answer is we don't know. Um, there are a lot of speculations, and they have to do with the fact that it looks as though a lot of North American taxa are derived from Asian rather than vice versa. And so it may be that there's a larger suite of potential organisms to move here. Into an, and it's, in effect, it views North America as more like an island. And Asia is the continental source. And so we see a lot more invasions from continents to islands than vice versa. That's one set of arguments. That's probably the one with the best evidence supporting it right now. But there are really important counterexamples. We have sent to Japan some extremely bad um, insect pests on conifers that have done terrible damage to Japanese pine forests. So it's not, a, it's, it's not simply one directional, but there is a general trend. Your second question was, what's the effect of climate change on invasives? And um, again, if you, if you are having trouble sleeping at night, I can give you some of my own papers on that. They're even more effective. And um, there are two things that are probably, two aspects of environmental change that are probably making life easier for a lot of invasive species. One is that we're seeing an increase in the minimum winter temperatures at least in the northern hemisphere. And we see associated with that the northward movement of a lot of plants and insects that used to be confined to the southeast. Kudzu is one example, but there are a lot of insect pests. Woolly adelgid is another example. So temp and the key, the key parameter does not appear to be summertime temperatures. It appears to be what goes on in the winter. Winters are getting warmer. That's what's allowing them to survive the, throughout the year and then grow and reproduce in the summer. The other aspect of, of environmental change that's really important is the simple increase in carbon dioxide concentration. So if you go back to pre-industrial pre times and look at the atmospheric carbon dioxide concentration, it was roughly 270 parts per million. We're now, I mean, well, after I've been talking for this long, we're now at about 600 in this room, but outside we're probably at roughly 370, 375 um, as, a, as an annual average. It turns out that some invasive plants are better able to take advantage of high CO2 concentrations than others. Um, kudzu is probably the best example of this. So we see kudzu expanding its range probably simply because of the change in carbon dioxide. We don't have 
good general data, though, to say that that's broadly true. But we have very good data for both insects and plants that minimum winter temperature is causing an increase on the, in their success. And it seems to be helping invasives disproportionately. Yeah. Um, if I'm not mistaken, there are state laws against growing both Johnson grass and um, Canada thistle. Only those two have become problem plants, I think, in agriculture in Virginia. So my question is, are there any federal or state mandated controls now being taken, measures being taken to help <coughs> any part of our invasive problem? Um, <clears throat> I, I do not know the current state of federal law with regard to mandated controls. There's probably... I mean, the National Park Service and the Forest Service and the U.S. Geological Survey have been real leaders in the field of making people aware and increasing public awareness of the problems associated with invasives and in creating opportunities for people to participate in programs in removing invasives. Um, I don't know, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, I guess is the short answer. Um, so I know sort of how they've linked into the public through that way, but I don't know what, what is mandated, what you can be fined for planting from an FBI agent versus someone from the state. You were talking about the zebra mussels. Yes. Um, is there any predator on the horizon? Uh, the question was, is there any, do we see anything, any sort of biological and presumably or chemical way to control zebra mussels? Right now, no. Um, this is zebra mussels, quagga, the Asian green mussel. We're seeing sort of, in effect, a biological attack on our waterways that is causing a phenomenal change in the major waterways of the U.S. The Mississippi, the Hudson River, um, the Missouri River, they're all being affected. Um, we see invasions into the Chesapeake Bay of other organisms, of some of, the, some of these other bivalves. And we don't have controls right now on them. The answer, it's a very depressing story. And the, the econo potential economic effects on fisheries and on shipping are immense. The biofouling that can, that can be associated with these is really huge. And they don't have, unlike the native bivalves, they don't seem to have any, anything stopping them. And there's, there's, a, there's a problem here associated with this. Here the question of introduction actually could be dealt with because we know how almost all of these animals were introduced. They were introduced in the ballast water of ships coming over. Ships come over with ballast water. They dump their ballast water as they take on cargo. Everything gets dumped out. So we know what's causing the problem. And in fact, ballast water is sampled now, and we find invasives in ballast water. The economics of controlling that have not been solved, though. It's very expensive for the shippers to deal with that problem. And, of course, that would be translated onto the customers. Surely there must be something regulating those populations in the country of origin. Um, we, don't, we don't know. We haven't been able to... We, I haven't worked on this, but other people working on this have not been able to identify 
a single control agent, sort of like that parasitoid wasp I showed you on the soybean aphid. It looks as though there's sort of a complex community that's keeping them in check in their native habitats. Um, but that ties back to the question about natural selection um, in that one possibility is that they've escaped their natural predators. The other is that they've evolved in some way to escape predation. It looks as though, in the case of zebra mussels, that there hasn't been evolutionary change. If any of you are familiar from the forests around here with garlic mustard, garlic mustard in the last 30 years has become a very severe invasive. And there have been studies um, done comparing garlic mustard growing in North America with garlic mustard in Europe. And there it looks like there might have been evolutionary change. That's the only, it's the best studied example where evidence has been found for some evolutionary shifts on the time scale of the introduction, about 200 years. But we don't, we don't see any evidence for that in zebra mussels. Probably some complex community control. Or, oh, I had an announcement. Um, if you're a student at Shenandoah University, you should stay behind for the quiz. Is that right, Woody? <laughs> no, that was a joke. Okay, well, thank you very much for your attention.